Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dundeal Football Podcast. In this episode, I had the pleasure to talk about my book Dundeal at Google. I discuss boot deals, transfers, image rights, and broadcasting deals. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Daniel G. The boring part is I'm a lawyer at a law firm called Sheridan's. The exciting part is I do football for my living, which is actually quite cool. And going back very briefly um, to um, literally all the times that I used to go to Anfield um, as a Liverpool fan with Hal back in the day, um, as all you guys are, I'm sure some football fans, the things that I always did when I was a six-year-old and still as a 37-year-old do is talk about football all day long if it's in the office or if it's actually after on the WhatsApp chat, because he gets really annoying on WhatsApp as well, actually, if a result's gone good or bad. Um, but ultimately, and the truth is, with a lot of the work that I've done, is from a very early age, what I actually wanted to do was talk about football. <laughs> and I've been lucky enough, and you'll hopefully see the career journey to a degree about why uh, and how I managed to convert myself from um, a regulations lawyer, which doesn't sound as sexy, to a football lawyer, which sounds a bit sexy, but all it is is a regulations lawyer in football. <laughs> um, and what I wanted to also talk about, uh, firstly, is a little bit about my journey, but as importantly, um, the type of stuff that I do day to day um, and the very nice um, impact that my book, which has just, just come out recently, um, has had on that. Now, apart from um, my mum being very excited about the book being published, um, it's been, it's thankfully been quite well received so far. And what I want to try and talk about in a little bit of detail are some of the sort of myths that I try and dispel in the book. Usually the first thing that most um, of my friends and even my family still ask me is actually what do you do as a football lawyer? So what is it that you do that pays the bills that's cool enough to say that you're a football lawyer and, and, and work in uh, the football industry doing? So um, very briefly it is as follows. On a day-to-day -day basis, I tend to work with players and agents. So that is what I do. Um, that tends traditionally to be behind a computer, but very often is on WhatsApp, um, is on my phone, is on voice messages that come to me sometimes at four o'clock in the morning. So I'll give you one just brief example of what happened to me the day before transfer deadline day, so Wednesday evening. Uh, and I won't obviously disclose confidential stuff, <laughs> but just to give you a flavor of what tends to happen very often, is uh, a message will come to me from a client that may be a club or a player, an agent, usually it's an agent or a club saying, um, right, this, this is happening, a deal's happening on this particular day, we need you to have a look, quick look through the documents is always what they say. And um, that happened actually at 1.45 a.m. on Thursday morning. Uh, Dan, there's a deal that's happening. You need to get on a train somewhere. You need to um, get to the meeting for lunchtime, try and conclude the deal in the afternoon, and then hopefully everything will be done before um, deadline day concludes. Um, and that type of stuff happens very regularly. The other cool element that happens quite regularly is when I, um, when I tend to know information that nobody else knows which obviously is very cool, but I need to be extremely careful about telling anybody this, especially because my family are the biggest blabbermouths of all time as well. And it happened because I did a, a Liverpool transfer over the summer. I knew a lot of cool stuff that was going on and couldn't tell anybody. And the, the brilliant thing about it also was, was that him, 
he was asking me about particular deals that were going on. I, I, and I couldn't, even, I couldn't even deny the existence of what was going on. So for about a week and a half, I couldn't even reply to him. So he thought I was just being annoying, <laughs> not replying to the general um, uh, rumor mill that was going on generally. But it was actually because one of the players that I was working with was going to be signing a deal with Liverpool. And I couldn't even tell my dad, obviously, which is very important because he obviously wants to know the, the goss and what's going on generally. But needless to say, as soon as the deal happened, I could then tell my dad and my rest of my family who had no idea what was going on, but I still couldn't tell them anything interesting about what happened in the deal because obviously that's confidential too. So the, the type of stuff that I tend to do is unfortunately, and the, the glamorous size is great. You're working with so many fantastic players with great clubs. They're spending lots of money. It is without doubt, the most terribly stressful hours of my life on a regular basis when the window is cropping up or finishing or concluding because you, you, you are managing risk. On one sense, you want to make sure that the deal completes because you don't want to be at blame if it's anything to do with you. You are still trying to communicate quite difficult legal concepts to your clients to explain what the risk is of particular things happening. And at the same time also, um, you're trying to make sure that um, uh, you are being proactive, you're thinking about solutions and things generally um, are going to plan and that you want to look unruffled. And looking unruffled and feeling unruffled are two quite uh, different things at times. So that's just a very brief way of um, background as to what I actually do day to day. So about me, we've had the intro. This is where it all began, um, is the truth. So uh, my seat was just above the director's box, about there. And as you can imagine, there's this big pole that got in the way of the goal, basically, <laughs> which is a problem. So me and my bro had to, uh, alternate games, had to swap seats. So one of us could see the main goal and one of us couldn't for a particular game, which worked out well. Now this is the old stadium, so it's now a cantilever stadium, so it's, um, it's slightly better. How did I um, get involved in football? So very briefly, um, what happened in law school at university was that um, I uh, asked my tutor, literally off the cuff, can I write about the Bosman ruling? And the Bosman ruling was John Mark Bosman back in the day in 1990 um, wasn't allowed to transfer to a new club after the end of his contract, after it even expired. And that started a very big landmark case, which five years later, actually resulted in what's called the free movement of players across Europe, which meant that after a player's contract had finished, they could move on a free transfer and the selling club couldn't, didn't have to demand and couldn't demand a transfer fee. So I thought, what a brilliant thing to possibly in third year uni write about, which was the Bosman ruling, the transfer system changing and how things would work. And they let me write about it, which is even better. <laughs> after that, I actually just tried to persuade my dad um, for me to spend an extra year at uni, which he was happy for me to do if I did something interesting. I did a, a master's in football broadcasting rights. It didn't sound as interesting because actually underpinning it was competition law, which obviously is not quite as sexy as football law, uh, but at the same time meant that I could spend best part of about nine or 10 months writing about how broadcasting rights are sold across Europe, which is cool. And it meant that um, I could get out of the real world for one more year before I had to start working. As a result of that um, master's degree, I had a little bit of spare time at the end of the year, which actually meant that my tutor said to me, instead of actually just slacking off, why don't you write in a couple of law journals about the things that you've written about? Great, okay, I'll do that. Didn't think anything would happen, but in a fantastic way, they, they were happy to publish something about the football industry, which was 
broadcasting rights and about club ownership. The Entertainment Law Review at the time published those two articles in a few, in a few month spells. But what I actually realized afterwards that is as well as it was great for my ego, fantastic getting the Entertainment Sports Journal, um, great to have the, the publicity, fantastic to um, show a few people and have it on my CV. The truth was, I don't mean to say it badly against the Entertainment Law Review, maybe only about eight people read it <laughs> is the truth. And you'll soon find out from a lot of the talks, uh, or rather a little bit the talk that I give in a little bit of time, is um, what I actually realized, as much as it was really good for the ego, um, because no one was reading it, I actually needed to improve, increase my profile to a degree. And the way that I actually did that, I'd met my wife Holly uh, in 2007 and quite quickly um, uh, we talked about all the stuff that I could do in my job and wanted to do in my job. She actually then said to me, well, hold on a second. Why are you writing five or 6,000 words for an entertainment law journal when you could be writing 500 words on your own blog free that everybody could be able to then access and read accordingly? And I actually thought, you know, it's actually a pretty good idea. Um, and so what I ended up doing was um, not necessarily not writing in law journals overall, but ultimately deciding to um, start my own website, which was danielg.com and then um, effectively start writing small pieces about trying to demystify the football industry to a degree. Even though actually at the time, I wasn't doing a huge amount of work in football. I was doing small bits that was hopefully increasing in the type of work I was doing, but I wasn't doing huge amounts at that time. And it came actually at a very, fruitful is the wrong word, but a really interesting time in the football industry. There was financial fair play, which I'll talk about in some detail. There was third party ownership, which was a big thing at the time. Luis Suarez came to the country. <laughs> um, and obviously he had a lot of um, issues with racism, with biting, with suspensions. John Terry matter came up as well. Um, so, and Nicholas Anelka happened at the same time. So what, what was actually happening, which is quite cool, is that there were, there were lots of cases and lots of issues that the public, the wider fan, fans really wanted to know about. And what I had a little bit more time before kids and marriage was to be able to read these cases, try and explain what they meant for the average fan um, and try and get beyond the Luis Suarez is a racist or um, uh, it's a three match ban for um, fouling somebody. Or actually, if you look at the detail of a particular case, it means that or it means this. And what I developed um, which was great, was quite a strong follower base on Twitter as well, which was a great amplifier of my blogs, um, to be able to then put forward easily accessible, easily digestible five, six, seven hundred word blogs that people were interested in. And then what happened as a result of that was that journalists, um, Sky Sports, all the types of broadcast media were then interested um, in having me on their shows, really, which was, which was great. Um, and that in itself then um, drove the profile that I was able to drive for myself and my firm, was able then to um, refine my message that I wanted to get across to people, and in turn led me then to that, which was from blog to book. So I used to give a lot of comments and commentary to uh, people in the football industry. Someone, um, a journalist said, why don't you think about writing a book on the topic? And I said, oh, great idea. I don't think anyone will actually think and be interested in it. He introduced me to an agent, David Luxton, and who is bizarrely my agent, which is quite strange to say, but nice as well. Um, and he is, in effect, the miracle worker that got my proposal that I put to him out to five or six different publishers. 
Um, there's quite a long process in that to all actually get the all clear to actually then get the deal and to write the book. And then more or less three years later from starting to get the proposal to finishing the book, we are there with, um, with done deal. So um, that is the book that um, came out a few weeks ago that, um, uh, that so far has done really well. You know, I don't know how many copies actually mum has bought in order to actually um, uh, skew the, uh, the Amazon algorithm accordingly. But in any event, um, uh, everyone's happy at the moment <laughs> in the G household, which is, which is nice. To the extent that when I told my daughters actually that I had a book being published, my oldest one, Izzy, is six and my youngest one, Livy, is three and a half, I told her I was writing a book. Um, the teacher then at the next te uh, 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 teacher's meeting then came in and said, Oh, it's fantastic that um, you know you've written uh, that you're you're involved in the book industry. Um, I didn't realise that you were a librarian, because <laughs> Izzy had told her that I'd become a librarian because I'd written uh, written a book. So that's my new new pastime as well as being uh, an author and a lawyer. So, um, book out. Um, uh, and what I wanted to share with everybody for the next 15, 20 minutes, um, hopefully if this works all right, is just a few insights into the world of um, football, which um, I see on a daily basis, and what is covered and uncovered in the book, but just talking about particular things. So you'll see at the top, transfer fees, shirt sales, agents, book de uh, sorry, boot deals, um, appearances, and um, image rights. Some of the more um, interesting elements that I think and hope will be of value and Please feel free to ask questions and to delve into some of the things I say. I think we're going to keep the questions, if possible, to the end, but just hold your questions because I'm always very keen on audience participation. So the most you're able to ask, um, the better. I'm looking at Tom. Please be careful about the questions because you, you probably know as much as me about some football stuff. So don't show me up too much, please. Okay, number one, a £35 million transfer. Uh, actually isn't a 35 million pound transfer. Now, I know it sounds slightly counterintuitive, but I promise I'll try and explain myself. So when you look at the back page of a story and the back page of um, a newspaper, you'll see player moves for 35 million pounds uh, and, um, uh, and that's the, a fee basically that the club has paid for that player. Yes, that is the case. But what I want to drill down to is actually the liability that the players, or rather the clubs, the buying club has to incur for that player. Now, if we talk about just the transfer fee for a second, the transfer fee is effectively the amount that the buying club pays to the selling club. The buying club pays, obvious. But what isn't usually as obvious is actually how that is structured. So in most deals that I see and have come across, what actually happens is there's what's called a fixed and a contingent element to a transfer fee. The fixed bit being paid regardless of anything over a particular period of time, usually the first, second and third anniversaries of the transfer. And the contingent being if certain bonuses are met, certain conditions are met, which mean bonuses are paid. So if I give the 35 million pound example, it may be, for example, I'll try and do the math right, that 15 million pounds is paid upfront at the time of the transfer. And then maybe on the first anniversary, five million pounds is paid. Maybe on the second anniversary of the transfer, another five million pounds is paid. So that takes it to 25 million pounds. It may be that for the next 10 million in order to be paid, the buying club has to win the Champions League or the buying club has to uh, win the Premier League, for example. And if those performance measures aren't hit, then that extra 10 million will never be paid. 
It actually gets a little bit more complicated than that because usually what has to happen is, as well as the club winning those trophies, the player has to appear in a certain amount of those games, i.e. he has to contribute to that season's worth of success. Now, that's the first element. So £35 million doesn't usually mean £35 million. It actually could only, might only mean £25 million and certain contingencies as a result. The other element which is not factored into any of that is the players' wages. Now, obviously, the players' wages are usually the biggest um, liability over the length of the deal. If a player signs a five-year deal, uh, let's say for 200,000 uh, £200, pounds a week, that could add over five years, I was trying to do the calculations, possibly 50 million pounds worth of uh, liability over and above the transfer fee that might only be 25 million. So the point is, when you see that headline at the back page of the newspaper saying £35 million transfer, think actually, the first thing is, you might not actually make, it might not be a £35 million transfer, but actually the main liability is actually the player's wages. So a £35 million transfer may actually be, if everything is included, but over £100 million worth of liability that's taken into account. And the other thing that needs to be taken into account is the agent's fee, but we'll talk about that um, in just a second as well. So myth number one, 35 million pound transfer isn't usually a 35 million pound transfer. It's a lot less, but also a lot more. Number two, I see this quite a lot as well. I feel I'm spending more time on this side of the room than this side of the room, I'm sorry, I'll try and do this. Um, is as follows. Without fail, Pogba, Zlatan, um, Mane, Liverpool, Salah, whoever else it may be, every time a big transfer happens, the first thing that you'll always see Beckham back in the day is ah, the clubs will recoup most of the transfer fee from the, from the shirt sales that they will then, um, they, they will then make as a, result of the, um, uh, as a result of the transfer. I, can, I can't say categorically that this absolutely never, ever happens, but I absolutely doubt that it ever happens for the following reason. So, try and give an example. And this is only from public information because Manchester United, for example, are floated in the US. So they have to provide certain information to investors on a quarterly basis anyway. It's reported that um, Ed Woodward states in some of those quarterly reports and what is published that Manchester United makes 75 million pounds a year from um, their Adidas apparel deal. They make 75 million pounds a year. That decreases if they don't get into the Champions League over a particular period of seasons. But on the whole, 75 million a year. And that's a 10, I think it's a 10 year deal. So um, almost coming up to um, a billion pounds for a 10 year deal, 750 million pounds over 10 years. Now, what usually happens in these very, very big shirt deals is effectively those apparel companies are paying a very big advance for the right to be able to then exploit the brand and to be able to sell those shirts. Um, uh, this isn't the Q&A part, but does anybody think that Manchester United, or how, sorry, just very quickly, how many shirts do you think Manchester United sell on a yearly basis? Just very quickly. Shout out, Nicole. 100,000. Higher, I'm doing a Bruce Forsyth thing here. <laughs> 15 million. 15 million shirts. That's quite a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not the ones in Bangkok. Pardon? 
It is. Well, they sell real shirts. Well, that's another big question, fake or real shirts. Is it a good point? Let's just say authentic shirts retailing for over 50 pounds a, a shirt. Five million. Five million. Okay, so the last figures were um, from a season and a half ago that Manchester United on a yearly basis sold 2.9 million shirts, or rather Adidas sold, or whoever the manufacturer was, 2.9 million shirts. I'm not sure if that's more than a lot of people think or less than a lot of people think. I get varying degrees of um, surprise either way. The point being that usually what will happen in those type of agreements is there will be this advance that is paid every year, but after that, there may not be anything more paid as a result to the club by way of amounts. Usually there will be performance related amounts, but that only kicks in after a certain amount of shirt sales are made on a yearly basis. So it may well be, and I don't know, that Adidas don't pay anything more to Manchester United per year over the £75 million mark that they do. And when I say pay, what I mean is share in the revenue. But let's say, for example, that um, Manchester United and Adidas share some revenue after they hit two million shirt sales a year. And usually that share, that royalty, whatever you want to call it, is actually probably only 10 or 20% of the overall additional amount. So let's just, without wanting to confuse anyone in too much detail, say that actually Manchester United, for every shirt sold over 2 million shirts, maybe gets 10 pounds per shirt. So you don't need to, me to do the maths very quickly for you to work out that one of the biggest clubs in the world are not making huge amounts of money from shirt sales over and above the amounts that they're getting from their apparel manufacturer straight away. Now, the other question to also add into the mix as well on that is, um, and it's something that no one's really done too much um, empirical evidence in, is would an additional, a marginal, um, buy a, a marginal fan buy an additional shirt with the new player's name on, or were they already going to buy that shirt with an existing player's name on? Which also fits into the narrative, which is it doesn't mean that an absolutely new fan is going to be buying an absolutely new player's shirt. It may be that they'll buy that shirt, but we're going to buy it anyway, regardless of which the player was going to be. So second myth, hopefully dispelled in a little bit of detail, which is very rarely, whenever you read a headline of shirt sales will make fortunes for the club, usually they won't. Sorry, it's a little bit smaller, but you can have to strain to be able to read it. Um, I know the, the question of agents is always quite a topical issue generally. Um, the narrative of agents is that um, they um, uh, don't do a great job for players or clubs, that they take too much money out of the game in terms of commissions, and that their approach um, is wheeler-dealer at best. I have a slightly vested interest in that I work with a lot of agents, but the book, hopefully you'll see as well if, you, if you're able to read it, gives a slightly different narrative to the usual narrative, which is agents are just bad guys doing bad things all the time and nobody uh, likes them at all. The, the difference with a lot of the very good agents is they're extremely well networked, um, uh, very diligent in what they do, work incredibly hard in a very, very insecure industry. And when I mean insecure industry, I mean they've worked very hard to get very good players on their books and probably at every other window, another agent is trying to poach their player to say, I can get you a better deal or I can get that for you, I can do this for you better. 
I'm not saying all of a sudden poor agents doing a terrible job on the breadline, but the vast majority of agents are not earning the huge sums that are reported in the media. Um, the point of what I'm trying to get to here is, is that there is an interesting narrative which works in the media, which is look how much uh, agents take out of the game and look how much clubs pay agents. And this is the thing that I think a lot of people maybe don't quite um, grasp in, in, in the same amount of detail that I've been able to be able to work with in the industry for some time is players don't pay their agents. So I just want that to sink in for a second because before I started the industry, it seems quite a strange concept to me. It's like if I'm, if I'm a player and Hal is my agent and, I, and Hal does a move for me to a new club, I thought that I would pay him because my contract is with him. I'll pay you a percentage of my earnings and that's the way that things work generally. But the way that things tend to work, at least in the UK and other countries, is in order to incentivize the player to move to their club, the club pays the player's agent. Does that make sense? Okay. And that has caused controversy because on the whole, that means that fans see their club paying agents and they see the amounts that they pay agents and don't like the amounts that they pay agents. And where it can get a little bit tricky for the player, and I don't want to go into too much tax detail because <laughs> this is certainly not a tax talk and I don't want to get involved in that type of stuff as well. But the one thing that actually then becomes quite interesting, I've already heard someone's heard too much about tax as well. Um, <laughs> the one thing that's important just to stress about that is, is that um, that is seen as what's called a taxable benefit. The, the club paying the player's agent is what's called a P11D benefit. It's like what mel um, medical insurance or a company car would be. So even though the player isn't paying his agent, he has to pay tax on the club paying his agent. And if that uh, is one of the most important things that I actually see when a transfer happens, is that there have been so many times when the player, 18 months on from a transfer, will get a big tax bill from HMRC. And, and, the, and the, the player will say, well, hold on a second, why have I got a tax bill? My, the club has paid uh, uh, my, my agent on my behalf. And then if the agent hasn't done a great job, unfortunately, the agent says, ah, yeah, but there was still a tax bill to be paid on that. And what usually happens for very savvy agents when a transfer is happening, we see this more and more, and I'm sure you guys will have heard of this, a similar equivalent. In the employment contract, an agent will negotiate what's called a gross-up clause. And a gross-up clause is a miraculous payment which comes one week before HMRC's tax bill comes along, which means that then the player doesn't feel the money going out of his account because it's more or less going straight to HMRC, which actually is a very clever thing for the agent to do, really, because otherwise they will, and I've seen it time and time again, get into an awful lot of trouble with the player when the player has to basically pay half of the agent's fee in tax to the tax authorities at the right time. So they're the type of things that, yeah, you see day to day. But the point generally being is, whenever it feels counterintuitive, almost always the player will never pay his agent. And we'll talk about what the thing is in the future that's going on. I think that's, that may, there's a possibility that that may change with the new FIFA regulations that are being implemented. Next. 
boot deals are complicated. Um, okay, so just very briefly, and, and I, I'm always interested in doing, um, actually I do use the Google Analytics tool for um, uh, my website to be able to understand actually which are my favorite, which are people's favorite blog posts more or less, and what I've had the most views from. The, the, the blog that I did on boot deals is uh, by far and away the, the blog that I've had my most views on in my entire history of writing any blogs. And the reason why I think hopefully it's hit an interesting, um, um, uh, an interesting uh, point is most people think that a boot deal, i.e. when a player signs a deal, and it may be for goalkeepers with their goalie gloves as well, for their shin pads and their boots, that all they are paying for is the ability of the player when they go on the pitch to use their boots and shin pads and maybe have a couple of appearances um, and some promotional stuff. So you'll have seen Messi last week for uh, Pepsi, but he used his Adidas boots, for, uh, his Adidas shoes for the um, promotional videos, etc. Um, so it means it more or less means this: whenever I see a boot deal, if it's with Puma, Adidas, Nike, New Balance, Under Armour, whoever else it may be, in almost every situation, it doesn't cover just boots. So just a quick um, straw poll, who thinks a boot deal should cover headphones? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> yeah, two, thank you. You got a head start there. The, the scope of a boot deal is vast. And there's two particular caveats and carve outs that I see quite a lot. One is with most manufacturers, they will try and carve out as much as possible into their scope that they can then exploit for the player to be able to use. So um, headphones is a big one. Um, shampoo and sh skincare is another big one. Any types of electrical goods um, is another one. Um, does anyone think Armani is a competitor of Puma? Apparently in some boot deals it is. Yeah, no, I'm not giving Puma as an example, but the general point is, is that if possible, what a brand is looking to try and do is to create the biggest scope as possible for a player not to be able to endorse anything else is the truth, because it gives them ultimately a bigger window to be able to put and uh, dress the player up in all of their gear all the time. And also the point worth mentioning as well is just if you sign a Nike deal, for example, it obviously goes without saying that um, you shouldn't be going out wearing Adidas trainers. But ultimately, the practical reality is, is that if you are signing a long-term Nike deal, you're probably not going to be able to wear Adidas for the next five years at all. And if you do, bear in mind, if you do wear any competitor, and especially a direct competitor, it's pretty likely your deal is over. Almost very likely your deal is over. So that's the one thing on the brand alignment and scope point. The other bit that's quite interesting, I think also on boot deals is the amounts. So you may have, the agent may say to the player, okay, fantastic, you're gonna earn 500,000 euros a year um, for your deal. And the player says, great, great news, great to hear. There's one annex at the back of most boot deal contracts, which always scares me whenever I see it. <laughs> And the reason why it scares me to a degree is it because 
Um, it is a direct table which relates to the amount of appearances that the player has to make on a yearly or seasonal basis. So what usually happens is the table, if he's an international player, which the big players are, so obviously, um, who are getting the bigger money, it will say you have to perform or appear in 80% of your um, club team matches and you have to appear in 70% of your international club matches. And if you don't, the retainer, which is the overall amount, reduces by 40%. And sometimes bigger, depending, and depends on how you want to negotiate that. So one of the important elements is for two things. One, to try and negotiate hard, hard on those points, but secondly, to make sure the player's aware of that point. Now, there's another question, all of that, which is, and I'll talk about it in the next slide to a second, but I want to just briefly mention it here. And this is obviously where lawyers get involved in a lot more. What do you think the definition of an appearance is? Exactly. I'm not, all of that is exactly right. Is it appearing in the match day squad? Is it being on the pitch? Is it starting on the pitch? Is it ending on the pitch? Is it five minutes? Is it 10 minutes? Is it 20? You know, that is one of the most important, we'll talk, I think it might be the next slide, which has gone to quite nicely. Perfect, I'm, I'm seamless. Um, that is one of the most important um, uh, definitions in a contract that I will tend to deal with. Because ultimately, for a boot deal, if an appearance can simply be 10 minutes in a game, you can obviously imagine that it's very much easier to be able to get to that 70, 80, 90, whatever percent threshold in order to maintain your retainer amount in your boot deal. But most importantly, in an employment contract setting, this is very, very, very strategically important for an agent and a player to know about, as you can imagine, but usually for two reasons. The first is when um, a, uh, an agent is negotiating his player's employment contract, there is much more, um, uh, uh, there is much more consideration given to variable pay rather than fixed pay as there has been in previous years. And what I mean is fixed is you will get £50,000 regardless if you play one minute, whether you're not even in the squad and it doesn't matter whether you play or not. That's the fixed amount. The player always knows that he will get that amount regardless of what he, how he plays or what he does. What a lot of the elite clubs are doing now is trying to reduce the fixed amount and increase the variable amount, which is if you play and if you win, you'll get more than uh, if you would have just uh, um, had your 50 grand amount every month, every week, and a little bit extra. So the incentive effectively is that if you think you're good enough to play in our first team, you should take a lower fixed amount and a higher variable amount because we're good enough, which means you're gonna appear and you're gonna win, and therefore you'll be remunerated better than you otherwise would have done. But you can see obviously the point that I'm trying to get at here, which then becomes the point, appearance becomes very, very important as a definition. Because the bonus element for the employment contract is appearance fee will give you a bonus. Now, as you can imagine then, it's exactly all the points that you said. Does an appearance mean, and it usually does in a lot of instances, a starting a Premier League match? That's what it can sometimes be. And there can be caveats throughout. 
There is a different bonus for starting a Premier League match, to an FA Cup match, to a Champions League match, to a League Cup match, to a friendly match. That's how varied it can be. And there can be different win amounts for all of those competitions. And sometimes they could be merged together. So it's an appearance and win bonus in order to get the bonus. So obviously, as you can get to now, an appearance and how that is defined is crucial as to whether a player may get the bonus or not. For an agent, he'll want to try and make sure that one minute on that pitch classifies as a bonus, as an appearance, whereas the club will want to make sure that it's a start in the first team squad for a particular game, which means it's harder, obviously, for the player to do that if he's injured, out of form, whatever else it may be. The other element of why, when an appearance becomes very important is because sometimes in a contract there'll be a ratchet effect. And what that will be is, is after you've played in 20 games, 40 games, 60 games, 80 games, your salary will go up accordingly as well. So you may be £50,000 that you get as fixed. If you play 20 games for us and appear in 20 games, you will then go up to £60,000 a week. And then £70,000 a week if you get to 40, 60, 80. And again, that's very important for how you define appearance. I've talked about appearance for way too long, but hopefully you can see why that actually becomes quite an important element for players and agents and clubs to understand. Last bit about dispelling myths a little bit as well. Um, so I've just been, just put the phrase out there, which is image rights deals are just another way to avoid tax. I just want to briefly spend, are we okay for time? Um, a few minutes talking about what an image rights deal is for players and then talking about why it's important in the current, um, in the current, current environment. So if I just try and uh, uh, explain very briefly, Traditionally, a player will only have one contract with his club. It will be an employment contract that will say, you are employed by this club to play football. Straightforward, with all of those clauses and all the things we talked about previously. Nowadays, for a lot of the elite clubs, with their elite players, they have a huge raft of partners and partnership agreements and endorsement deals that they can activate across the globe, which are very lucrative um, contracts. And what clubs are realizing is they are happy to, well, not realizing, what they want to do is control the activities of their players to a degree so that they can activate those players for the club to be able to then activate its own partnership arrangements over a long-term <laughs> basis. So do Spurs want Harry Kane to be able to um, activate a night campaign for Spurs? Yes, they do. Do uh, Liverpool want uh, Mo Salah to be able to activate a particular campaign for um, Standard Chartered? Obviously they do. Within the standard contract, there are default positions where players have to uh, have X amount of appearances. But what is happening more and more with elite clubs is they are entering now into two separate deals with their players. One is the employment contract, but the second is an image rights contract, usually with a player's company. And what happens in this deal is the player's company more or less promises to do two things, which is of real significant value to the club. One is, it says, for the provision of X amount of money, uh, we, the club, want to make sure that you, the player's image rights company, make sure that the player appears in X amount of endorsement opportunities and partnership opportunities for the club's partners. 
Does that make sense? Guaranteed numbers. So that means that then the club's commercial teams can go out and sell quite a lot of inventory on the basis of knowing that maybe their top 15 stars will be available and are contractually available to help endorse the club in a club context. And that's a very important element. The other element which is very useful to the club in paying a player's image rights company is that there are a hell of a lot of restrictions that then the club can impose on the player. So just to give you a brief example, they don't know how many partners Manchester United have throughout the world, global partners. There's a lot. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure it's quite 150. But at last count, I think there was upwards of 90. So, for example, and just by way of if it's Manchester United, if it's Chelsea, if it's Liverpool, if it's Arsenal, a lot of these clubs have um, a big roster of commercial partners. And what those clubs would ideally want from their players is to ensure that those players cannot contract with a competitor of the club brands. Which means that they are effectively clean from any com club competitors. Which then puts their, them in a strong position to make sure that their players are never going to um, endorse competitors of the club's brands. And that's quite a valuable commodity to be able to actually um, use as well. The flip side, which is why we talked about tax, is the reason I've said all of that commercial um, explanation is because still there are always big headlines about the fact that um, image rights deals are just a way to avoid tax because obviously players' image rights companies are paying corporation tax rather than pay-as-you-earn pay and national insurance contributions. The point being is that even though that money is coming in and the club and the player's image rights company is only paying corporation tax, that money is still in that club's accounts. It has to, if, he, if the player wants to remove that money, he's either got to pay it through dividends, he's got to pay it um, through salary to other people through the company, however it is. There still needs to be tax paid for onshore companies that are using an image rights structure. So my point is, I'm not the... Uh, the guy that will always say image rights structures are always totally inadequate. It's just another way to avoid tax. Usually there are very good reasons why clubs will want to enter into image rights agreements with their players. One, because it guarantees them appearances. And two, it means they can just restrict the players in um, promoting competitor club brands, which can be very important. Okay, almost there, I promise. What's next? I just wanted to talk, um, I've talked actually about agents already and look, get your questions ready if you have any, any questions as we, as we go, I'm more than happy to answer anything. But a lot of people um, actually, since I've released the book, have actually said, well, what do you think is next for the industry? And uh, there's a chapter right at the beginning of the book called um, the football ecosystem, where I talk about how everything is sort of overlaid together. So. Um, you know, where do players fit in with their clubs, where do clubs fit in with the league, where the leagues fit in with broadcasters, where broadcasters fit in with the fans for subscriptions, where about international games, what about FIFA and UEFA and all of these different ways that um, um, the football world works. And people said, have said to me for quite some time and continue to ask me, is the football model sustainable? I think that's one of the things that lots of people say. You know, football players are being paid huge amounts of sums to be able to play football and for their image to be able to be used. 
is that model sustainable in the longer term, where we have Sky, for example, and BT paying five, over five billion pounds um, for UK rights, and a whole raft of broadcasters paying upwards of four, million, uh, four billion for the overseas rights for live Premier League matches. The query is, well, how can clubs still afford to pay all of these wages and pay these exorbitant transfer fees? Is the bottom gonna come out of the market at some point? That's the type of question I get asked quite a lot. And the answer, at least for the time being, and that's why I just put the broadcasting point up there, is, is that so long as there is an appetite for broadcasters to spend large sums of money because they think they can recoup that money by way of subscriptions and different models, then at the moment, the answer is yes. But I saw some interesting stats a few weeks ago explaining that Sky, um, uh, in the purchasing of their, the, the rights for Premier League matches, seem to be straining a little bit in removing some of their other content because they've had to spend so much money on Premier League matches and live Premier League matches. And in the same way, whilst Sky has always been the incumbent for live Premier League matches, BT came into the market two auctions ago, effectively because they saw quite significant churn. They saw churn away from their broadband offering into Sky broadband because people were already taking uh, uh, pay TV Sky Sports and thought that they should bundle Sky broadband with their Sky Sports offering. So in some ways, what a lot of commentators said at the time was that BT came into the market to protect their broadband offering and then in order to be able to then get Champions League rights and Premier League rights. And then you can see what's happened subsequently. Um, BT by EE, uh, Sky have their own um, uh, mobile offering as well. And you have what's called a quad play offering. So you have two quad play players playing out in the UK market for a whole range of consumer goods. Um, pay TV and Sky, Pay TV, sorry, and the Premier League being a very big part of that um, overall picture. So the question is, at some point, who knows what will happen, is whether subscriptions start dropping off because of the cord-cutting generation, because people aren't willing to pay 60, 70 pounds a month for their Sky or BT Pay TV subscriptions. The question asked a week ago, Simon Jordan was on um, um, uh, Talk Sport and he said, why don't the Premier League just go it alone? Why don't they just go straight to markets and offer an OTT offering globally and uh, ask people to pay eight, eight to 10 pounds a month to watch every Premier League match they want and take away the broadcasters? I've, I, I wrote a blog about 10 years about that, 10 years ago about that exact point. You know, quite a lot of um, uh, Major League Baseball do it really well in the States. And there's a real interesting offering now that could possibly come to fruition. But the truth is, it would take a very brave, whoever the next chief executive of the Premier League to come in and um, decide not to take the nine billion pound check that is usually on the table for the global distribution of its rights. So if I just end on that note, which is, are things changing? There's death, there's cool things happening in the market right now with lots of different broadcasters doing cool things. But ultimately, so long as that money funnel continues because fans and subscribers are subscribing to those channels, then that money flow will continue throughout the game and players will probably be paid you know, significant amounts because they are that good and because the clubs can afford it. So on that note, I think I'll probably say thank you for listening and happy to answer any questions. Um, 
What's the strangest thing that you've seen in a player's employment contract with the club? Like a clause or of some sort? Um, I haven't seen any like totally bizarre things that I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's just really weird. <laughs> but there's lots of publicised ones that I've put in the book, really. So um, if I talk about a few of them, um, and this is just what's been reported in the press, really. Um, so Neil Ruddock, who was an ex-Liverpool player and Spurs player back in the day, who, um, uh, you know, I think could have only really played centre-back because he was, you know, quite a big guy. But, you know, he scored a great goal, I remember, in the Man United, Liverpool Man U game. When he went um, uh, towards the end of his career to a particular club, um, the report was that they put um, a, weight, a weight clause in his contract so that if he went over a certain weight, he would be fined or his wages would be reduced by a certain limit. Another clause which um, I read about, which was Stefan Schwartz, he was a Swedish international player. He moved to Sunderland and apparently there was a clause which said, he, he, Sunderland had read somewhere that one of the things he'd always wanted to do was to go to space. So Sunderland apparently put a clause in saying, during your time at our club, you are not allowed, you're prohibited from going into space. And there was another one which is from a, a Liverpool player, an ex-Liverpool player, Stig Inge Bjornaby, who's a Norwegian international. Um, he, uh, his father was, I think, an Olympic skier, and uh, Liverpool ensured that there was a clause in which said he couldn't ski during the time that he was a Liverpool fan, or a player, obviously, for obvious reasons, really. And there is, that is quite a standard clause that you can't really do anything hazardous for the obvious reasons that you'd probably hurt yourself. Uh, just a quick question about the uh, the boot stuff that you put up as well. I've, I've got a good friend, actually, who works for one of the big two, and he... Um, he was saying about the one of the biggest challenges he cites with working with some of the players. He looks after five Premier League clubs, I think. Um, is is their egos and like their personalities, and they they all want things for free, even though they earn, you know, mega money. So I suppose my questions around expectations. Do you do you how, how do you deal with expectations with players and, and with with big egos? Well, not everybody's got big egos. I'm brushing everybody, but. Um, yeah, how, how do you deal with kind of like those expectations with players and those, you know, and, and big players? Are you talking about uh, in terms of boot deals or just generally? Just generally, yeah. I, I suppose it's quite difficult to manage. Yeah. Um, simple truth is that um, of the players that I have close relationships with, and literally it's, it's hilarious and, and cool as a football fan, they'll just WhatsApp you and say hello. And literally, I'm giving book recommendations to one player who's interested in like just in expanding his expanding his um, uh, repertoire of uh, reading at the moment because they have loads of away trips and he's got lots of time on his hands. Um, but the, the majority of players that I end up having good relationships <coughs> with are the guys that um, want to know the detail, is the truth. And usually, in my experience, the players that want to know the detail are the most switched on, that understand the way things work. The players that maybe don't are the ones that I'd be like, just leave it and let the lawyer do it, let the accountant do it, let the agent do it. However it is, that, that's absolutely fine too. But usually, I don't like to call it prima donna status, it's actually because maybe they're not as educated as, they need, as, as the team around them need to give them to make sure they understand what they need to be doing on a daily basis to get by is the truth. And what I try and do a lot of the time, just to flip it onto the positive, is that every time a new player 
even if it's a young player especially, comes into the office to say hello or helping them with the deal. My idea is like, look, just give me half an hour with the agent and the player. I just want to talk you through particular things that I think are going to be important for the next deal, for the next endorsement deal you're signing. Think about what you're doing on Twitter or Insta or Snap or Tinder, <laughs> um, literally. Because you know everybody has um, a phone, everybody has a video, everybody wants to catch someone out doing something they shouldn't do who's famous. That's the truth, unfortunately, that we're living in at the moment. Players 20 years ago were in a much, in a way, a much more privileged position that they could get, get, probably get away with a lot more stuff that players can't do now. So that's almost the point, which is, I'm trying to just to flip and pivot the narrative, which is get players better educated as to what they need to be doing so they can make more informed decisions. Always players will do things wrong. They're as fallible as, as us. Um, we just, I think people just like a bit of schadenfreude of where a famous person who's earning a lot of money does something stupid. Just wondering how you manage um, your client's expectations when you're dealing with someone who, so for example, a player that is injury prone and you're going to see that in their boot sponsorship deals and in their appearances, a lot of that is tied to their, you know, their appearances and how you deal with that. It's a really good one. Um, it depends how you classify injury prone is the truth. Now, either you do one of two things. As an agent, you can strategize beforehand to say, right, we've got three boot deal offerings on the table. The retainer amount is this amount for this, for, uh, for this particular manufacturer. We think an estimate that because over the last three seasons, the players played 25 games per season because either injuries or form, whatever it is, we need to try and get to this number with this amount of appearances that we think we can get for the player every season. So in a way, it's a reverse engineering of the, um, the contractual matrix in order to make sure that, we, that you can get the player over the line saying, this is the amount that you may earn, but you're probably going to earn only this amount because of the amount of games you're going to play. And ultimately, what can sometimes happen, which can help, is on the appearance side, which I, which I didn't quite touch on, if, you, if you're savvy enough, what you can actually say to the boot manufacturer is to say, we're only going to classify appearance as particular competitions. Because if you're an elite athlete, elite footballer, you're probably li less likely to play an FA Cup and League Cup and more likely to play in Champions League and Premier League. So what you would try and do if you're the elite uh, agent, elite player, act, agent acting for elite player, you try and exclude the, the, the cup competitions to try and ensure that if appearance is defined as 80% of those games, you're more likely to be able to hit those benchmarks. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, www.danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Done Deal Football Podcast like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably like my book, Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Yes, a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All the links are in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening and please join me again. Lastly, please do check out my new cancer research charity band called 13. All proceeds go towards research into breast and ovarian cancer, and there's plenty of merch to choose from. 
There are hoodies, t-shirts, caps and socks. Just go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks in advance.